from the top of the Raptors to the seats at ringside. Welcome to the center of the ring. I am your host, the referee, Johnny T. And today I'm joined by my man, D. Foe. How you doing, bro? I'm all right, man. Thank you again for having me on, man. I'm excited about this one, bro. Uh, You know, I'm excited about it, too. We teased it at the end of our last episode together, and we're just going to jump right into it. We haven't had much of an opportunity to discuss a lot of WCW events, and um, I grew up a fan of of both products, to tell you the truth. I liked there are things about WCW that I liked and didn't like, and there were things about WWF that I liked and didn't like, which would become WWE that I liked and didn't like much like today. And um, I always thought it was interesting how people would be at, without really understanding a lot about the business as a kid, how someone would be on Superstars Arresting Arresting Challenge one weekend, then the next week be on WCW Saturday night or be at Clash of Champions. And then somebody was at, WCW with a big boys play on a on a Monday one one week and then the next time they're on Raw another week. So um, we decided today we're gonna cover an uh, event that WCW ran, and to my knowledge, it was like the first time that WCW decided to try to go heads up with Vince McMahon's promotion, uh, WWF. Uh, this event took place on Sunday, April 2nd, 1989. For all the hardcore wrestling fans, that date might sound familiar to you because that was also the date that WWF ran WrestleMania V, uh, where the mega powers exploded. Yeah, the macho man against the Hulkster <laughs> at Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino. And uh, interestingly enough, this would be the event that set all sorts of records for Vince McMahon's promotion, all kinds of pay-per-view buyout records. It was the most profitable event uh, to that point during the 80s for WWF. And WCW, they were looking for that same date to run a pay-per-view. And the story goes that you can't, you can't run a promotion against Vince McMahon and company on pay-per-view within so many weeks of each other. And since WWF was generating so much revenue, the cable companies were like, okay, well, we'll comply. And so WCW, interestingly enough, and it was it was starting to become branded WCW, but it was still by the commentators referred to as NWA, National Wrestling Alliance. Um, at this point in 89. So WCW ran the Clash of the Champions on TBS because they couldn't run on pay-per-view. And it was billed as an event that has something like 10 mega matches. We're going to talk about how only a portion of those matches made it to television. <laughs> yeah. That day. Uh, they ran WCW. They ran a dome event out of New Orleans, the Superdome. A number of years later, WWF would run WrestleMania out of the same building a couple of times. And how different did the building look for the NWA event versus how it looked for a WWE event? 
Oh man, night and day. Night and day. Just so much goes into production value (laughs) for Vince and company. And albeit, let's be fair, in 1989, the technology and all of that stuff looked different than what it did, you know, in recent years. So it's almost not a fair comparison. But if you do want to draw a comparison to apples to apples, you can take a look at the production value for just what WrestleMania 5 looked like versus what the production value for the Clash of the Champions looked like. You can clearly see that so much of this venue was blacked out. And I want to believe that it was blacked out because, well, there were probably a whole lot of empty seats at this event. Mm -hmm. take a look at Wrestlemania 5 I don't believe there was too much of anything blacked out there because obviously they want to be able to show that the crowd you know that there's a big crowd Um, I thought about you when I saw our good friend on commentary Michael PSA (laughs) (laughs) wasn't he tremendous on commentary like just Random, just everything. It was just, it was Michael PSAs being Michael PSAs. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, to the absolute fullest. And he, and he shared commentary responsibilities with a significantly younger Jim Ross. The greatest, man. Would you have imagined back then that Jim Ross would become synonymous to the voice of, of pro wrestling? In the opinion of so many. Wow. I mean, I never really thought about it, to be honest with you. It just basically just kind of just happened, right? Just kind of like evolution. It just, you know, yeah. Jim Ross just, j- just um, you know, he, he was with the times, man. He, he was with the times and evolved, like I said. And yeah. Had obviously so many moments. Him and um, Jerry the King Lawler on commentary, um, you know, uh, on Raw and everything like that, and just his entire run, you know, the back and forths you know, of Vince firing him, and then just to bring him back because he wanted the person that he replaced Jim Ross to be like Jim Ross, which made no freaking sense to me. But yeah. anywho, but just but yeah, man. I mean, I mean, because shoot, Jim Ross is a part of of my um, wrestle hood, you know, he's the first voice that I heard. It was with him and Tony Schiavone. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see them together again in the AEW promotion. Right, man. Right. I'm glad they, you know, Jim Ross was met with a a little bit of criticism coming back in, you know, maybe not as good as he used to be, maybe lost a step in the early AEW you know, presentations. Jim Ross is old, out of sync, still stuck with these old ways of wrestling, not with the times, all of that stuff. Not, it doesn't sound like he's the most familiar with the product. I'm sorry. I, I just feel like Jim Ross gets the pass to be Jim Ross. Jim of Ross. Course. Jim <laughs> Ross presents an element. Like, is he is he as sharp as he was? in the 80s and in the 90s through the Attitude Era and all of that. Like, no, he's not. But he's kind of like, he's kind of like if you ever decorate your house for the holidays and how you have like that one old decoration that was there from maybe childhood that you still use. Mm -hmm. Is it the coolest looking decoration? 
No, obviously they've made better decorations between childhood and to where we are in 2019, 2020. But it still just feels like you should have it there. And Jim Ross is that decorative piece for wrestling. Listening to the way he was selling this this show. And, you know, and and I'm, I'm to draw a parallel to WrestleMania 5, I really do believe pound for pound, this was probably the better pro wrestling show as we start to break things down match by match. However, it, it may be met with a, a little bit of resistance when I say, when you look at the main event that Vince was selling and you look at what the main event was that the NWA was selling, I, I think the WrestleMania 5 main event was better. But the undercard show, the undercard matches for WrestleMania 5 weren't really so spectacular. But all of the undercard matches on the Clash of Champions were better wrestling matches than the wrestling matches that were at WrestleMania 5. But WrestleMania 5 at the better main event, I believe. Hmm. Interesting. My analysis, and we'll get down to it match by match. The Samoan SWAT team with, with manager Paul E. Dangerously and the big brick cell phone, mind you. <laughs> the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette with a reception to a tremendous baby face pop, which is sort of unusual for, for Corny. <laughs> right. Uh, it opened the event. Well, they opened the event with, with what appeared to be an ode to all of the NWA wrestling legends. So it, it's sort of like they had like this appreciation night for them the night before. I would say it sort of looked like the first stab at a pro wrestling Hall of Fame event, but not exactly being a Hall of Fame event. They opened up the event, you know, making references to this big banquet and thing that went on with all of these NWA wrestling legends. And then when he opened the, the first matches with the Samoan squad team against the Midnight Express. And um, I felt like it was a really good match. I think it was a, a, I think it was a good, strong, old school tag team wrestling match with psychology. Wrestling. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no, this match, oh my goodness. Like, um, I literally almost jumped out of my seat. I, I was engaged. From from the very start, like literally from the introductions, man. Um, yep. it, it it was just so smooth from both, you know, from from everybody involved, you know, um, you know, from even with uh, from uh, Paulie Dangerously and Jim Cornette's involvement, you know, just everything just to seem to be on, on on par, on time, crisp. Every move meant something, you know. And I literally enjoyed it as a wrestling fan. It was just, and the crowd, that's the main thing. And I guess it's kind of maybe part of what's missing due for obvious reasons, but just the crowd was so in, in, engaged and into it. You know, um, you knew right away who was their faces, who were the heels. They cheered the hell out of the Midnight Express and they booed the hell out of Paulie and, and, and the Samoan SWAT team. But an interesting dynamic, if you looked at it, even if you looked at it without the audio, both of those teams wrestled a very heel style of match. 
<laughs> they sure did. They sure did. <laughs> Manager interfering on both sides of the line. Both of them confusing the referee as much as they could. They both wrestled a, a very heel style, which is what made the match very enjoyable. It was, who was going to get the better cheek to get the win? <laughs> right. <laughs> and the difference maker was the cell phone technology owned by Paul E. Dangerously. Uh, the two managers, uh, Polly Dangerously, today known as Paul Heyman, the Heyman Hustle, and Jim Cornette, they distracted the referee to some SWAT team wins after the use of the brick-sized cell phone, courtesy of one Polly Dangerously. How about that cell phone, pal? Reach out and touch someone. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Golly. You know, but it uh, it was an entertaining match. All the way through. Next, we would see the great Muda with manager Gary Hart versus your good friend Steve Casey. <laughs> <laughs> As described by Jim Ross, the great Muda is the son of the great Kabuki. Yeah, did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Ross, again, applying that, that background story, a great storyteller in his commentary. Helps you to connect better with the character. At this time, the Great Muda was a relative newcomer to the NWA. And uh, they had him positioned at that point in time as being undefeated. And they were positioning his story to be someone who was going to be a real tough person to beat. Mm -hmm. And his story sort of played out that way moving forward. Why do you think the Great Muda isn't, hasn't received more accolades as we look back on wrestlers of historic significance why do you think he hasn't received much more than what he has um i believe simply put just because he never um came over and crossed over to um to wwe mm -hmm. um great muda honestly um is one of my favorite um japanese wrestlers like all time like um him the matches that you know he had with sting and Sting is also like my favorite wrestler. So like just the um their chemistry, the matches that they had, but just Great Muda himself as a talent, man, he was revolutionary. Um he was doing things that nobody was doing, you know, with the he was the originator with the um with the mist. Ooh, mm -hmm. don't get that mist, you know, and <laughs> and you got sucked into the storyline like every different color mist was oh this was poisonous oh my god you know and <laughs> the wrestlers would sell the effects or whatever but um great muda is tremendous man great muda was tremendous especially back in in his in his prime in his his, his heyday like i said again you know the uh, moves and how he moved into moved in the ring and the things that he were doing he was doing and performing man it was it was a rarity you know, his closing move was a moonsault flip off the top rope. They, uh, Michael P.S. Hayes and, and Jim Ross, sold it as a high-risk maneuver. No one has ever been able to do. He's the only person in wrestling to that point, as they had it built, that ever pulled off that maneuver. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because that was like such a, it was such an exclamation point for a match circa 1989 and you look at how often that maneuver is just used as a 
as just a, a an element of the story in most people's matches and really no one wins a match with that with that maneuver at all these days in fact you've got people like ricochet you know great mudo did the flip you know pulled off one flip and you get an aj styles or a, a ricochet that's pulling off the same maneuver and they're squeezing in two or three flips before they land exactly within that but that just that just lends to your point um of great muda being groundbreaking in the approach to his matches at least for the american wrestling audience that might have been something that was done fairly commonplace in most of the japanese promotions at that time but for the american wrestling promotions that was just something that we, we just didn't see a whole lot of Next, we will go on to see JYD, the Junkyard Dog, with a phenomenal entrance with the live Dixie Band when the Saints mm-hmm. go marching in. Mm-hmm. And he had a match against Hacksaw. Not Jim Duggan, but Hacksaw Butch Reed. And he had Hiro Masuda in his corner. Kind of weird to see the natural Butch Reed. I'm sorry, Hacksaw Butch Reed with the manager other than the Slickster. The doctor style, but I guess uh, Hiro Masuda would, would serve well enough in his role in the NWA. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that WWE Hall of Famer referee Teddy Long was the official in, in charge of that particular match. I tell you what, nobody can rock a ball spot in a perm at the same time better than old <laughs> Teddy Long, right? <laughs> God. Teddy Long, oh. good old Theodore Long. I love, I love Teddy Long. Holla, holla. I do. I love Teddy Long, too. Teddy. Tag team match, player. It was the solution for everything as a tag team match. <laughs> um, Teddy Long had long hair around the sides and the back, and it was permed, it looked like. It was either perm or finger curl. And then just completely balled around the top of the cranium. Just, he was just trying to find his mark. I guess long hair was the prerequisite in wrestling during that time. And he was, he was hanging on to it, boy. He was hanging on to it. Yes, he was. God bless him. Yes, he was. Holla, holla. (laughs) (laughs) He did a great job as a referee, man. You know what? I mean, I didn't know his name at the time, but he would go on to become a significant manager for the NWA slash WCW mm-hmm. as the manager for Doom, who was uh, incidentally one of the competitors in this match along with Ron Simmons down the road. Right. And then he would later find his way to WWE, on-air personality, manager, general manager as well, and later on to the Hall of Fame. So this is just a, another stop in the story for, for Teddy Long. As far as the match is concerned, I felt like it was like a, like a quote-unquote big guy match. You know, Junkyard Dog was a pretty thick, pretty big kind of a build at this point. Sort of coming to a place, if you looked at Junkyard Dog, you know, seven or eight years earlier, he had a slightly different physique and his physique was evolving to something different at this point. Yeah. Rich Reed was walking to the ring, and I couldn't help but notice it looked like he was limping and hobbling his way there a little bit, too. I was like, is Butch Reed hurt coming into this? 
But then he got into the ring by scaling the top rope, and I, I guess, I guess it was just a soul walk. I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna say I didn't, I didn't see that uh, myself when he yeah. walked through. Yeah, you, you might have, might have just been a little sore, you know, might, might have just been a little sore, not injured, but just sore. Yeah. But once that bell rang, they, they did a match in my opinion that's typical to the style of a junkyard dog match, and typical to the style of a of a butch Reed type of a match as well too. Oh yeah, a lot of flips and stuff, huh? Yep, a lot of moon salts and four fifties. You know, a, what I would call a five star wrestling clinic. <laughs> and that's no disrespect to either JYD or or Butchery. No, no, not at all. Look, Junkyard Dog had great days, and so did Butchery. Yes. And then you know, as we said in previous podcasts, you know. The the ultimate winner is gonna be Father Time, and you know, the clock was ticking on their careers. Sort of at this point, they had runs during the seventies. They all had significant runs during the eighties with Vince, and that schedule will definitely take years off of you with the schedule that they were running at that pace. Right. You know, so it's no knock on them. They still had they still had an engaged crowd for their match. Junkyard Dog will go down and always be revered as one of the most loved wrestlers of all time. Got to WWF, which, which, you know, I'm looking at this event and I'm also keeping a couple of other things in mind. And I'll talk about it probably a little bit more when we get to to our main event, Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat. But you look at just two years prior to this, Junkyard Dog had a match. Um, I believe it was at Harley Race, the King Harley Race. Butch Reed was also involved with the match as well. Uh, two years prior to this at WrestleMania three, in front of 93,000 people, two years later, these guys are wrestling in another dome. Not the Silver Dome in Pontiac, but the Super Dome <laughs> in, in Louisiana. No, no official word on the audience size that was actually there. But again, given the fact that so much of it was blacked out, you know, I'm I'm gonna assume at best ten thousand people in a dome that clearly seats sixty or seventy thousand people for a wrestling configuration. And I'm just doing a little gorilla monsoon style mathematics. It wouldn't surprise me if eighty five, ninety thousand people could fit there. <laughs> <laughs> gorilla, God bless his soul. Gorilla will always stretch the numbers just a little bit. Like he'll 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 give like initials like during the contest and whatnot. You know he'll he'll give one figure, and then when they do the you know the tradition when they give the big number or whatever, then all of a sudden like that number just just so happens just to double or oh, yeah. triple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. He said that they say he weighs in around 498. I wouldn't be surprised if it was closer to the 550 mark, <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, hey, we're, we're we're sold out here at the Hoosier Dome <laughs> for WrestleMania. <laughs> we're sold out at the Hoosier Dome. You know, sixty. Right. You know, there's a parking jam outside. You know, people are still falling in. Right now, we're probably at about fifty or sixty thousand, but Jesse, I wouldn't be surprised if we're closer to 80,000 by the time this is all said and done. <laughs> right, 
Right. It's always just a huge number, overselling the numbers. So I'm just overselling the numbers. Probably about, probably room for about 250,000 people in the in the dome at uh where the Clash of Champions were in, in Louisiana that day. And it's just a trip. How, just the difference that a year or two can make for the career of some of these folks. Um, you wrestling for the for let's just face it. WWF was the number one wrestling promotion at that time. And, um, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with, you know, you still earn a living. I'm sure these guys weren't hurt for money at this point in their lives. But it's just interesting to see how that how that rolled out. Um, as far as the match is concerned, the match ends with a missed move finish. Um, the manager, uh, Hiro Masuda, is standing on the ring apron causing a distraction with the referee, the natural, I'm sorry, not the natural, Hacksaw, Butch Reed, appears to be throwing Hacksaw Jim Duggan into the ropes, the same space where the referee and the manager are standing, but Hacksaw reverses it. Butch Reed hits the manager, falls back, and just like that, one, two, three, JYD walks away with the win. You know, you still, uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but you know, you did mention Jim, Hacksaw Jim Duggan in that little, you know, breakdown. Oh, oh did, I, did I still say Hacksaw <laughs> Jim Duggan instead of Hacksaw Butchreed? <laughs> there's, there's no biggie, but, you know. Uh, but we don't want people like, to think I don't know what I'm there be like, oh, Johnny T said Hacksaw Jim Duggan and... And, then, and then they'll be all on my Twitter feed saying that he doesn't know what he's talking about with wrestling and the center of the ring is a fraud podcast. Mm. <laughs> Hacksaw Jim Duggan that night was in WWF, and Hacksaw Butch Reed this night was at the Clash of Champions. I know that it was Butch Reed who took the loss <laughs> <laughs> to the great JYD, the Junkyard Dog. Then the Saints came marching in, and the band played on while the, the Saints went marching out. Next matchup, we see Rick Steiner and Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. Um, the United States Tag Team Champs with Missy Hyatt in their corner versus Dangerous Dan Spivey and Kevin Sullivan, representatives of the Varsity Club. It was a hit or miss match. It was a weird match to me. It was weird to you? I liked it. It was short, but they everybody got their quote-unquote shit in, mm-hmm. I believe. It was action packed. I liked it. What what made it weird for you? Just because I knew what the varsity club became. And it was weird seeing like Rick Steiner not considered part of Varsity Club, but it was Dan Spivey and Kevin Sullivan. I don't know. It just said weird. Just said weird. <laughs> it wasn't a bad like move for move. Move for move, it was not a bad match. Everybody displayed good athletic capabilities in the match. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take anything away from what everyone contributed to the match. It just seemed like there were odd pairings. That's all it was. It just seemed like there were just odd pairings. Okay. That's it. I mean, it's it's no knock on any of them. It's almost kind of like we need to I don't want to say it's a filler match because I, I'm, it, it wasn't. It was wrestled better than a filler match. It wasn't like an attraction thing to break the monotony of something, or you know, it, 
the wrestling was really good wrestling in the match. Mm-hmm. Just set like an odd pairing. That's all it was. That's all it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll be sure. I mean, I, I can't. I can't knock you for that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I said, I enjoy. I, I enjoyed it for 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 what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Good chemistry, however, between Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. They paired well together. And Kevin Sullivan is one of those wrestlers that I think can just... He's like a chameleon, and in my opinion, can just kind of mesh in well with anybody. But Kevin Sullivan is one of those guys that he got... He kind of like acquired an old look quick. And just stayed that one age all the way through the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, he got to be like mid 40s and just stayed mid 40s, even when he was 50 and 60 and, and beyond. He just, <laughs> he like got there fast and then just stayed there forever. But he worked really, really well. Yes, uh, uh, and I know a lot of a lot of fans, uh, a lot of people in the business view him as one of the best workers in the business. Um, one of the best, in my opinion, who never really reaped the rewards of his greatness long term. What do you think about Kevin Sullivan in that space? Man, um, I've always had high praise and respect for Kevin Sullivan, not only as an in-ring performer, but also um, he always had a, a great mind uh, for the business as well. Um, as everybody should, um, every, as everybody knows, um, Kevin Sullivan was a writer um, for WCW, you know, with the infamous him and Brian Pillman, Booker Man! <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I mean, but Kevin Sullivan, he came up with um a lot of um a lot of a lot of good ideas, you know, behind all you know behind the scenes. So, I mean, Kevin Sullivan, uh, I don't know, I doubt that he'll ever get into um, WWE's Hall of Fame. But Kevin Sullivan, as a whole, both as an in-ring competitor and as well as um as a writer backstage, you know, laying everything out. Oh yeah, Kevin Sullivan most definitely deserves his praise and his and, and and our respect, and for everything that he's done in the wrestling business. You probably won't get a chance to talk intimately much about Dan Spivey. What do you think about his contributions Man, to the to sport? I, I dug Dan Spivey like Dangerous Dan Spivey, and then fast forward, um, I really um, got into him. As a uh, Waylon Mercy, mm-hmm. you know, as short as Waylon Mercy you know, as he lasted in WWE, and that was um, unfortunate due to basically just the wear and tear on his body. And I believe he ended up at, um, retiring because of um, a back injury, a back yeah. issue. Yeah, but it, it, it's it, it is kind of like the cliche, but of what ifs. Man, if Waylon Mercy, if he really was the like, really had like a real solid run and a get off man, I mean, you you could put that, um, you know, what I'm saying that character um, up there with okay at the times you could put them him up with um, Bret Hart, you know, with the Bret Hart saying the Shawn Michaels and Undertaker, you know, mm-hmm. um, whoever you know, what I'm saying pretty much whoever was on top, you know, but unfortunately we only. Um, had had him for a short time, 
But I mean, a lot of people, um, wrestling fans, uh, still recognize um, Dan Spivey as Waylon Mercy, that character. And it's just like, whoa. And, you know, I'm not trying to get off on too much of a, a you know, off the topic, but obviously Bray Wyatt is like the closest thing to like the extension um, of a uh, Waylon Mercy, of Dan Spivey, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, man. Um, I, but I mean, but going back when um, Dan Spivey back in WCW as Dangerous Dan Spivey and him and um, he was tag team with the uh, with Undertaker or excuse me, Mean Mark. Mm-hmm. You know, as the skyscrapers and then him and um, as well as over the original was him and uh, um, Sid. You know, they were a powerhouse tag team. You know, went in and whooped ass and yeah, so um, I believe overall, like I, I have um high respect for for Dan Spivey, and I believe that his contributions uh were were very good. Okay. Well, I wish he could have had a better ending to his story. It was just one of those kind of things where it's like just too much, too little, too late. Um, because I feel like his character as, as Waylon Mercy was was positioned to really, really create some impact. He just couldn't carry it out physically anymore. So from one Rick, Rick Steiner, to another Rick involved in the next match, which would be the main event for the Clash of the Champions, challenger for the heavyweight title, the nature boy, Ric Flair, whom at that time was revered as having had the title five times. As we come to know, he's the 16-time world champ now, but five times at this point in 1989 against the man that he has touted publicly, his favorite person to compete with, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat for the NWA title, and it's a two out of three falls match with an with a incredible story buildup that dated back to the Chi-Town Rumble, which is where Ricky the Dragon Steamboat would have upset the wrestling world by taking the title away from Ric Flair. This was the second of what would become a trilogy set of matches for Flair and Steamboat. And again, we ran for two out of three falls. I want to take a look at a couple of aspects of this match. Uh, Starting first with the entrances. Um, What did you think about the pyro? In the in the laser effects, and the misspelling and the misspelling of Rick's name, R I C K, yeah, at the entryway. How did you feel about that? I was very disappointed with that detail because it's just okay. Obvious, you know, the man spells his name R I C. So that right there, and I'm pretty sure they had plenty of time, whoever was in charge of that area to get that right. And it was the same with um with uh, Ricky's name. They had um Steamboat's name just all mixed up and around. I think it was like the dragon and like the was like, you know, in lowercase letters. And then the dragon was like in all capitals. Like it just looked so off. It was just like really just come on man like you have one one job to do yeah i don't think it's that hard 
So, yeah, that was kind of like, you know, I mean, if you're looking just for details or whatever, yeah, that detail um, wasn't a fan. Like, that did, like, kind of, like, give the side eye to. (laughs) No, and and you know what? I'm going to be a ball buster for details on this one because this match, look, when you set your main event, this is supposed to be the match that's selling the tickets to get people in. And at least that was the thinking. We go back to 1989 where this took place. And then you're thinking, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to run this event against the biggest wrestling promotion, dollar for dollar, a more successful wrestling promotion, who's going to run their event in a space where people got to pay money to watch it. But we're going to go against our built-in audience on TBS. So we're going to get people to watch our show for free and take paying customers away from the other main event. And I mean, then this was a big main event. We're, mm-hmm. Pow, we're talking Hulkamania running wild all over the madness. The Macho Man Randy Savage. And they've created this story, this huge story that had this huge buildup to it that had that taken on this feel of a love triangle. And oh, yeah, the title is up for grabs in this as well, too. And you want to make sure you have people that are excited to be tuned into this alternative product because at this time, the NWA, it kind of became the alternative wrestling product for for wrestling purists, which I found interesting in the show. At one point, Jim Ross is giving a shout out to all of their wrestling fans in the the Northeast. I don't know if you caught that or not. A number of fans (laughs) out of Connecticut who are tuned in. I thought that was random. Yes, it was. And I'm sure that that was directed to him by someone. Doot, doot, doot. And uh, <laughs> and obviously, you know, World Wrestling Federation headquarters were in Stanford, Connecticut. And he specifically said a lot of our fans are, are tuning in, especially out of Stanford, Connecticut, the northeastern part of the U.S. and everywhere else. So they're low. they're low-browing the fact that Yes, there's some other wrestling promotion that's based in this area that has a lot of fans, but of those fans, we still have a lot of them that are still very much into NWA. And and that's fine. Again, it was a different type of a product for probably a different type of a fan, very much like how AEW is a different type of a product for a different type of a fan versus WWE being a different type of a product for a different kind of a fan versus Ring of Honor being a different type of a product for a different kind of a fan. We'll get... we'll. We'll grant that. But God, like if this is this is your main event and you're going to go through the trouble of adding extras for it, the pyro, which look like low level sparklers. (laughs) You're going to use the laser, you know, we're going to use the laser naming and all of that kind of stuff. If we're going to spend the money on it, and this is going to hold your audience, like, got to make sure that those details are right. And granted, WWF didn't have any of that at this particular point. They weren't using any pyro or anything. Interestingly enough, the first time we would actually see pyro introduced, in, in my recollection in wrestling, would have been the next year at WrestleMania six when the Ultimate Warrior would have taken the title from Hulk Hogan right at the end. Right, right. It was one spot for it. End of the match, 
ushering in the new decade, new champion, new feel. You know, they're in a stadium space where at that time it was probably easier to get that kind of stuff approved through the fire marshals or what have you. And then they were in Canada doing it too. So it's probably, they were probably nicer with the requirements. So you're like, okay, we're going to use these, these fireworks. Okay. It looked really cheesy. Ric Flair's looked really bad. The quality of Ric Flair's music, when you hear it over the PA, sounded really bad. It didn't sound that great. It just, Ricky the Dragon, he's got his wife and his baby in a little dragon costume, pajama. Just, I don't know, just, this is supposed to be the steak. Where's the sizzle at, pal? Where's the sizzle? <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. From yeah, that that was disappointing. Mm-hmm. All of that was disappointing. And like you said, this is supposed to be the main event. Your main event. You're supposed to. It's supposed to be all the the, the spectacle and the you know all the um you know pomp and circumstances you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. oh, I think I said that right yeah mm-hmm. it's supposed to be all that you know and yeah the it, it, you you weren't sold not at all uh, you know you weren't you weren't sold based on just that you know, for for that for that detail uh, those details alone it was just Hmm. Aesthetically okay. speaking, aesthetically speaking, it just it wasn't a good look. However, what was a good look was what took place after the bell rang. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, at the at the end of it all, people are there to watch matches, and and this was a good match to watch. So this was the second in a trilogy set for these two. The bell rings, they're going at it, and. Let's face it, these guys delivered uh, what we would call a five-star wrestling clinic in just the first 19 minutes of the match, which is where the first fall would occur. Um, Ric Flair scores the first fall. And what was interesting is, on commentary, uh, Michael Hayes had taken a timeout, and we allowed uh, Dory Funk or was it Terry Funk? Which Terry Funk was there? Funk. It was Terry Funk. It was Terry Funk. It was one of the Funks, this baby, that was over there at ringside calling a play-by-play with our good friend Jimmy Ross, baby. And it's funny to hear Terry speak because it sounds like Mick Foley imitating him. Mick Foley does a perfect Terry Funk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you ain't sucking dog. <laughs> and so we hear Terry Funk really settle it up the match. Greatest match of the year, probably. And, you know. Just really, really selling up, you know, the toughest NWA, you know, wrestlers have held this belt. And these are the toughest that are here now. And it was a good way to sell the matchup because they both put out a really tough effort for this one. Uh, Ricky Steamboat, 
interestingly enough, just two years before, was involved in Pro Wrestling Illustrated's match of the year for some ridiculous number of years, like 25 or 30 years straight. And that would have, wow. been, the, and that would have been the match versus the Macho Man Randy Savage at WrestleMania 3. Just two years before this, that match takes place in front of 93,000 people. And in a match that many people say fully defines Ricky the Dragon Steamboat's wrestling career. He's done great things, different promotions. He's held titles in different promotions along the way. Obviously, this guy walked into this event as the NWA World's Champion. Okay? This match yeah. at that time, two years ago, was for the Intercontinental Championship, which was not WWF's top prize in the promotion, but it was the workhorse title, and it was the title that was seen defendant uh, more often than the heavyweight or the world title. You take a look at where he was at just two years prior, setting up the benchmark for wrestlers for so many years to come. And that match is still studied by so many wrestlers that are coming into the business today. Two years later, he's defending the world title against what will become one of the most significant names in all of pro wrestling, highly regarded by so much of the hip hop community, Ric Flair. Ricky Steamboat makes Flair tap out to double chicken wing. And Ricky Steamboat ties up the match. One fall to one fall. And then we would see the match end when Ricky Steamboat would try to apply that same submission maneuver, but his leg buckles because Ric Flair had poured on the punishment courtesy of the figure four leg lock at some point during the match. Both set of shoulders are pinned onto the mat, meaning... Steamboat is laying down closest to the mat. Ric Flair is laying on top of Steamboat. Apparently, Steamboat's shoulder comes up at the last second. Flair's didn't. Steamboat would win the match in just around 55 minutes. And then the discussion would come up around Ric Flair's foot being under the rope. They showed a replay, which was interesting because on the replay, when they're counting both shoulders, you can see that both shoulders were off the bat. But the selling point on this one become Ric Flair's foot was underneath the rope. They start alluding to how Ric Flair has a gripe. The attorneys will get involved to demand a third match. So we can tell that they're foreshadowing that there's going to be a third run or a third time meeting for these people here. Even though Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in the same breath is talking about how Ric Flair had a great run and it's time to be fair and start looking at other competitors for the title along the way. Right. The first time these two did this, it was magic. What do you think about this time around? Ricky Steamboat and Rick Rick Flair? Are you kidding me? Like they're my Ric Flair voice that didn't sound like Ric Flair. <laughs> <laughs> Man, no, like they're they've always had that that thing, man. Um, I I dug this match. I was invested in the moment the bell rung, man. Like seriously, 
um, 19 minutes, Johnny, 19 minutes before the, you know, Flair got that first fall, for that first fall. And, that, and, and that's, they were doing, and that's beyond a full length match for a lot at this time. Let's keep that in mind. Right, right, man. So, yeah, the, the those two were like peanut butter and jelly. Like Forrest Gump referred to Jenny, they were peas and carrots. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can't I, I don't know what else to really say or to add on. I thought the match was tremendous. I thought the match was carried out well too. Um, both guys, you can really believe. Were were truly invested in winning that title. Like you know, with you really believed that there was a lot of urgency on both of their parts. Ricky to keep it and prove that it wasn't a fluke. Ric Flair to win it to prove that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat winning it was in fact a fluke. And I like how they talked about how Flair was so angry and, and beside himself at the end of the match, but you didn't have to hear it from Flair. You can just imagine that, yep, that sounds like something Flair would say. That sounds like how, how Flair would feel without um, without even hearing a word from from Flair. Right. Right. I mean, just Ricky, Ricky Steamboat, just a consummate good guy. You know, well, yeah, Mr. Flair, you know, I have to, uh, Mr. Ross, um, I have to move on from you, you know, Ric Flair, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're a man and you're, you're a champion, but you know, this comes to an end. Um, I have to now, uh, look, uh, look, uh, look to the next challenge, look to, uh, to look to the next chapter. Then fast forward like two minutes later after he sees the footage. Oh well, you know, hey, if I was Ric Flair, um, I would have a um, a legitimate problem. You know, I hate to say it, it was just he just sounds so clean cut and just you know what I mean, like just, you know, just the- scouts honor <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate and good guyism, right? Right, like there was there was no sense of like, man, what the hell, you know, and just like you know, regardless of the evidence being shown, whatever, it wasn't, it was never no nothing where, no, nah, I'm still no, nah, bump that, hey Rick, hey, tough shit, you lost, mm-hmm. I won, I'm the, I'm the champion, and uh yeah, I'm 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 going this way. I don't give a damn about your foot being under, underneath the rope. Nah, Ricky didn't do any of that. He was just like kind of like he did kind of have like a slight a, a slight sigh. But mm-hmm. It was more so kind of like oh, I gotta do the right thing. Dang it! Okay, <laughs> you know. <laughs> to draw the parallel again for that match with uh, Macho Man Randy Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat uh, again, just two years earlier at WrestleMania three, that match had twenty two pin attempts. And the match lasted 14 minutes and 35 seconds. This match went 55 minutes. And I don't know. At this point in Ricky the Dragon's career, do you think that that WrestleMania three match is, you think it's fair to say that that's where the career for Ricky Steamboat honestly peaked? Yes and no. 
Yes and no, because I mean, after after okay, spoiler alert, everybody. The next time Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat fought, uh, Flair ended up beating Steamboat for the title. Correct. Um, but I do believe, yeah, yeah, that was his peak. But I'm not. But but needless to say, Ricky still did good things in wrestling. I mean, I think he ended up coming back to um, WWE, WWF, mm-hmm. and then I just didn't get it. They just completely ignored everything that he did and just simply dubbed him the Dragon, like he was just this brand new character, never set foot, and I just didn't get that. So that didn't last long, and then he came back to WCW, and um, he did good things. He was um, tag team champions on, I think, a couple occasions, but I know one in particular with Shane Douglas. And then he had um, he put um, he put stunning Steve Austin on the map. Um, I believe to uh, for the United States title, and that unfortunately that match, I think it was at Bash at the Beach, um, ended his um, cut his career short and ended it. Um, you know, for years until when he came back at WrestleMania, which was just like forever later. Awesome, just because it's like Ricky Dragon is like how old and basically still look like he hasn't lost anything at all. But yeah, um, but yeah, his he did reach his peak, Johnny. But at the same time, it wasn't like Ricky just after that was just kind of like you know just irrelevant. He still had his name, kept his name. The story goes that Ricky the Dragon Steamboat a lot of, allowed a lot of personal decisions uh, to get in the way of his professional life. Um, shortly after winning the Intercontinental title at that classic at WrestleMania three, decided he needed to spend some time at home with his wife and kids, which it's hard to have a work-life balance when you're working for Vince McMahon and company. So he lost that title to whom would become the still to this day the longest reigning WWE, WWF, WWE Intercontinental Champion of all time. So honky tonk man. The greatest by God Intercontinental Champion of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just feel like Ricky Steamboat just had a lot of back and forth after that, after he left WWF the first time. I think he was a phenomenal talent. I think he did great things in the ring. Um, if anyone had to have that kind of a career, it's great that he had, if he had to be summarized by one match, it's great that it's the match that he summarized by with Macho Man. And it, it just got regarded and revered in such a way that it does 30 something years later. If it had quite to be, right. if it had to be, I, I think that that's a great thing. Oh, well, most definitely, most definitely. In the interest of time, we're gonna wrap things up the same way the Clash of the Champions got wrapped up in the interest of time because Sting was also scheduled for a match this evening, which was not aired, and Lex Luger was also scheduled for a match that evening, but. Did not air, and this was due to TV time. You're running an event against the preeminent brand in wrestling. You've advertised matches 
and then we're unable to deliver these matches because of the interest of Ty. This becomes a little anticlimactic for the Clash of the Champions. However, I want to just ask you, uh, we have about three minutes left. Which event do you think was the better event for that for that evening? WCW, the Clash of the Champions, or World Wrestling Federation's WrestleMania Five? It would have to be WrestleMania Five, just due to the fact that WrestleMania Five didn't have any matches that were scheduled and then yanked off because of time constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, however, feel if uh, if Clash of the Champions had and um, showed the full card, which they advertised, I would have actually given it the slight edge to Clash of Champions. In my opinion, I believe the Clash of the Champions was the better pro wrestling show. And... Um, and when you put the main events next to each other, um, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat, and then on the other on the other show you've got Hulkamania running wild and the Kingdom of the Madness, Hulk Hogan versus uh, the Macho Man Randy Savage for the title. I would also have to agree. I think the better main event definitely came from World Wrestling Federation. And I think the better produced show was also with World Wrestling Federation that night. But I don't feel that the Clash of the Champions was a bad show. Um, I think it was a valiant effort and a bold effort to, to present something on the same night that the major competition was. And I think what was smart about it was that, again, th- those who were the hardcore NWA wrestling fans, they weren't necessarily hardcore World Wrestling Federation fans. And so there was an option that was available to appeal to their specific audience that night. And so I I think that that was the win and that would have been a takeaway for the NWA that night. I like it. I like it too. And I like the fact that we have successfully covered the event. We're going to do this again real soon. Real, real soon. Yeah, I can't wait for us to do this again, Dorian. Always a pleasure to have you step foot into the Center of the Ring podcast. And we've got about maybe a minute to a minute and a half left. Any shout outs, any hellos, any verbal middle fingers you want to throw up at anybody, this would be the time to do so. Nah, nah, nah. Um... I come from love. (laughs) (laughs) I um, just through these times that we're going through right now and continue to go through, I just wish nothing but the best to everybody, all of us out there during this time. And just know that we will get, um, we will get past this. We will return to our normal lives and everything will be, We'll, we'll be groovy again. So just shout out to everybody that's obviously dealing with this. And um, my heart goes out to those that uh, have lost loved ones due to this shenanigans. I'll try to keep my language clean. <laughs> but yeah, man, but, but all joking aside, my heart goes out to those families. And 
just hope that everybody could just uh, keep their head up and and try to stay positive through, through these difficult times. And thank you once again, referee Johnny T, for having me, Defoe Lee, and I'm singing the ring. I appreciate having you here. And on that note, we're going to ring the bell, and we will see you next time. <laughs>